psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there and welcome to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host Niall Campbell. We have had a wee bit of a hiatus but we have some brilliant guests lined up and today I'm bringing you audio from an event we hosted a while back called the Summer Symposium. It was a really great event and I just wanted to thank all of those that attended and obviously the panellists. We will be having more of these in the future and sorry we just couldn't simply accommodate everybody that applied to be in attendance but watch this space for upcoming events. The format seemed to work quite well, about an hour or so long talk with a live panel in front of an audience, and then we moved through to different space to have some food and live music and just generally meeting people in the flesh. And it just reminded me how impoverished I generally think Zoom experience is. So even if it costs a bit more in terms of resources and logistics and things, I just think in-person events for the topic of psychedelics are really where it's at. And I don't think anyone's going to lie on their deathbed and wish that they'd looked at more screens. So, as always, I'll see you on the other side of the conversation and enjoy. Well, let me check. One, two, one, two. We are in business. So thank you, everyone, for attending the uh, inaugural um, Mind Manifest podcast summer symposium. You're all very, very welcome. Um, we are very um, pleased to have a few really top quality panelists here today. Um, I should have previously mentioned, but unfortunately, Jeremy Tannenbaum, the uh, psychiatrist who was due to be part of the panel, has had um, a, a tragedy befall him and his, his friends and his family. So my uh, deepest uh, condolences and, and, and heartfelt uh, wishes go out to him and his family, and I'd like to dedicate the podcast to him. We'll be going through the panelists, but we have a really excellent uh, replacement to you, as you'll see, is very close to my heart. <laughs> so maybe, um, first of all, just a very brief um, welcome. Uh, uh, I have been really incredibly enthused by the the uptick in interest and support in uh, in Perth. Now we were interviewing people internationally. But after a psychedelic experience, we decided that we would focus things a bit more locally. So I want to chat locally and think uh, globally, because in a way, I do not consider Perth to be a big country town. And in the ways that it is a big country town, then that constitutes a social fabric, which is maybe sometimes hard to find elsewhere. So I think this is time for us to really look around and see there are people from entirely different walks of life, from druids to venture capitalists. There's no them, there's only us. We're all in this together. And... Um, let's break bread and have wee chats uh, together because really there's no, no more stabilizing force in the universe, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so I'm just going to introduce the panelists and then tell you a little bit about some wonderful sponsorship that we have for this. And I think it's really going to do a great common good. So first up on the panel is none other than my wife, uh, Hannah Courtault. So um, Hannah is a clinical psychologist um, and she has a master's degree in clinical psychology. Hannah is passionate about providing person-centered, trauma-informed, evidence-based psychological interventions. Uh, I can attest to how warm and engaging her manner, manner is, and she's keen to really empower everyone that she works with uh, by supporting them to learn the skills necessary to sustain self-healing. So that sustenance is really important, uh, and uh, it really comes with an integrative component. Um, 
Hannah's background is working with children and adolescents, um, but myself and Hannah have also worked as clinicians in a residential rehab facility, so working with people with complex uh, diagnosis and dual, dual diagnosis with uh, um, substance and process addictions, um, and also working in London uh, in the UK with the NHS as a diagnostician, working with children with autism, um, and also um, now working as a private psychologist here in Perth. Um, what is one thing which isn't really as much on the bio, but is very pertinent for us today, is Hannah has also worked for um, Alalaho, which is the uh, UK Psychedelic Society's subsidiary, which is a, um, a, a sends people to, to rehabs, legal um, residential, um, sorry, legal psilocybin retreats in the Netherlands, so sort of similar to synthesis. And so Hannah has real world experiencing triaging people to ensure that. Um, the highest levels of safety and rigor are met prior to people going on these incredibly profound experiences. So there's real world experience there um, as well. So um, I would love for you guys to give a big round a warm welcome to my wife, Hannah Courtauld. Um, on my left is Dr. Stephen Bright. Now, uh, Stephen has been on the podcast um, and I had a look through Stephen's bio and I sort of, um, excuse the pun, but synthesized a few things together. So he's here to tell me if I'm wrong. All of the people that I'm giving the bios are here to tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but Dr. Stephen Bright is a clinically trained psychologist who has worked in the field of mental health um, for the past 15, I suppose, to 15 to 20 years. He's currently a senior lecturer of addiction at Edith Cowan University and is also an adjunct research fellow at Curtin University's National Drug Research. Institute. Uh, Dr. Bright has a long-standing professional involvement with psychedelics and is one of Australia's foremost scientists in the field. Stephen is a founding member and vice president of the organisation PRISM, which is an acronym for Psychedelics Research in Science and Medicine, and he is also due to become one of the first ever Australians to successfully complete certification in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy through training issued by the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, also known as maps. Now, I think the pretty potent way that Dr. Bright would sort of pr primarily identify is as an ethnopharmacologist, would that be a fair assessment? Which is a really cool title and good to say at bars. It's like dual thief or ethnopharmacologist. That's going to be one of the two that I choose. And the through line I think that I, I think connects his various strands of work is the study of the ways in which human interacts with psychoactive substances and how we can seek to optimize these complicated relationships. So that... Um, I think alludes to two really important points. It's not about perfecting, and it's not simplistic. It's about optimizing complicated relationships, so that is an ongoing discussion. So um, please give a big um, round warm welcome to Stephen, and thank you very much for being in attendance. And on my right is Dr. Michael Winlow. Dr. Michael Winlow is the managing director of Ameria, um, Ameria are one of Australia's most exciting drug development startups. Uh, Michael holds um, a Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery with honours from the University of Western Australia, as well as a Master of Business Administration from Stanford University, um, which is really quite the juxtaposition. Um, prior to Ameria, Michael was um, uh, CEO um, at Linear Clinical Research, 
a company providing clinical trial services for US and Asia-based biotech companies. Linear was the first site in Australia and one of the first few in the world to success successfully adopt electronic data capture technology. And Michael retains uh, directorship of Linear. And prior to Linear, Michael was a health lead at Palantir Technologies, which is a big uh, data company based in Silicon Valley in, uh, in California. So some really wonderful stablemates here, and I think it covers the f really the full spectrum of the things that we, we want um, to talk about. So a big um, round, uh, warm welcome to uh, Michael as well. Thank you for being here. Now, before we get into the uh, the nitty gritty or the chat today, I also um, want to allude to this um, this little um, poster behind us here. So, obviously, the series is called the Summer Symposiums, and as I'm sure I've mentioned to people via email, I look at this as the inaugural one. I want to have chats with you guys to see what you want the future wants to look like, what topics you want to interface. But this is really just the opening conversational gambit of a mycelial network of <laughs> conversations. But the charity that is being is benefiting from this, and I'd really all give yourselves a pat on the back today. There's a charity that I've become interested in through a movement called Effective Altruism, which looks to see uh, charities which have a, the best philanthropic ROI, the ones which give the best bang for their buck, because so many are obscenely ineffective, and that's the sad reality. They're not all charities are created equal. Helen Keller delivers vitamin D drops, so a really proximal, non-woo-woo way to, to help do some good in the world. And probabilistically, if 3,000 kids receive two vitamin D drops in the course of a year, a child who would have died doesn't. And Maria have very kindly degree, agreed to what's called a donorship. They're not sponsoring the show. They are providing a donorship that we don't hold in escrow. So they're facilitating that. I've, you know, the, the, all of the sort of catering and everything, that's from the Mind Manifest. But on top of that, with a bit of topspin, is a, is a donation which is going from Maria directly to Helen Keller. And that is going to save a child's life, probabilistically. So you are part of the... Uh, inertia which has created that to happen and I would love to see that happen so every time I ramble on some child who didn't need to go blind or die doesn't and that's the way that we can connect the proximal with the woo-woo uh, and the, the sort of nuts and bolts so a fantastic big thank you to Emeria and to Michael for letting that happen so thank you very much thanks to you Niall <laughs> your, your, your uh, advice and suggestion to do yeah, that so really great uh, thank you. So, um, well, first of all, we're just going to go across a couple of different topics. But one thing that I would like to do before I shut up is um, get a sense in the room. So people feel free to keep your eyes open or closed. But I would like so that we know who here has had a, a psychedelic experience. Now, that could be a classical psychedelic. It could be a, an intactogen, an entheogen, um, even a really profound uh, experience with THC or CBD. So just... No disclosure, there are no cameras here, but I would love to get a sense of what the sort of critical mass is in the room, so um, I'll keep my eyes open if that's all right. But could I get a show of hands of who's had a psychedelic experience? Okay, so only um, 12%. <laughs> that's for the people in podcast land. I'm not going to... Let's just say it was the majority. So... Um, we all know what the crack is, okay? We know how profoundly useful and how profoundly derailing these substances can be, so nuanced conversations are, are important. So on that... I would like to op have the guys open with the first little strand I was want to talk about is what the clinical care model. Now that's quite a broad church of a definition, but the real the way I'm defining it is the context around which these substances are going to be enacted. Because no one sensible is saying you just go off into a room, take a tab, and you know that's that you, that's you done. So maybe I'd love to hear you know from sort of left to right, like if you were to think about what what your ideal context for, for psychedelics per se would be more, in more, more general terms. 
Um, when you say clinical context, do you, do you mean in terms of mainstreaming psychedelics or do you mean the, the more micro level where people or you know, co-therapy team are engaging sure. with somebody? I suppose wherever we end, in your case, Stephen, I, I would say because that's the world that you're from. So like what would, what would an optimal uh, context for a therapeutic session look like? Let's say with MDMA, because I know that's what you're you know, experiencing in the training. So I think that would be a good place to start. Like what, if you had a magic wand and a benign government, what, how would you design the context for, for the ingestion of, of, of MDMA? Let's start with. Um, well, firstly, I guess the the preparation and and um, subsequent integration sessions are as important as the the drug sessions themselves. And so, in clinical trials, um, people who have received placebo have also recovered from um, PTSD. So, so it indicates that it's more than just the drug itself. It's the, the as you're saying, the sort of the context within which that is being delivered and so ensuring that there's a, a qualified um, and mature and experienced clinical team, a male-female clinical team, I think is particularly important with MDMA because of the high likelihood that when MDMA is provided that it can um, amplify counter-transference and um, transference responses within people. Yeah, so to that point, um the, the dyad is something interesting. So that would be something that you would say is going to need to be necessary. You need to have two therapists in the room, generally speaking, for Yeah, with, with MDMA, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I think I, I'll, most of that, I, there's, there's things that we can drill down on in the conversation afterwards uh, about the dyad and about the context, but I, I'm in broad, broad agreement with that. Um, now, uh, I know, Michael, that uh, Amiria have... have started an, an arrangement with um, the UWA to more, like you guys are really wanting to move into the MDMA space and possibly in the psychoactive and I suppose the non-psychoactive way, but to, could you speak to, to something along those lines about the, the, the context of what, what are your thoughts? Uh, so um, for, for those who, who aren't aware, we have an arrangement with the University of Western Australia right now to uh, uh, help screen a library of MDMA analogues. These are molecules inspired by the MDMA, the original MDMA that we uh, may know and love, um, but with slight changes to it to hopefully uh, try and uh, generate different kinds of neurological effects. The inspiration for this was uh, Matt Pickett, the leading scientist's own father, had Parkinson's disease, and there was some great anecdotal evidence that uh, MDMA therapy could help with the side effects of Parkinson's treatment. Parkinson's is a movement disorder. And unfortunately, the treatment itself can also create a movement disorder. And if you can kind of subdue those effects, you can live a more functional life. And so MDMA was great for that. It actually works really well. But MDMA has these other wonderful qualities too that make it a fantastic therapy drug. And, you know, if you're a Parkinson's patient, you may not wish to be in a state of euphoria, uh, you know, day to day. So the idea was, and medicinal chemists take this approach all the time, what if we can uh, adjust the molecule slightly, enhance it, change its properties, change its shape, and try and uh, interact with different uh, neurological receptors, we might be able to get a different kind of therapeutic profile. And he was able to show in his early research that he could actually get some really positive effects uh, on Parkinson's symptoms uh, with some of these analogs. And as inspiration, he's continued to pursue different versions of those, of those compounds too. But in the same uh, set of experimentation, he's generated many, many, many compounds based off MDMA's inspiration, some of which we believe may become even more potent uh, psychoactive uh, drugs and potentially have uh, benefit as 
different kinds of psychedelic assisted therapies, uh, perhaps shorter acting, perhaps more potent, perhaps uh, more suitable for different patients with different indications, uh, perhaps more suitable for patients who are already taking other kinds of psychoactive drugs and avoid some of the drug-drug interactions and remove some of the side effects uh, that MDMA has been known to elicit and some of the, and hopefully increase the population of patients that can uh, try these treatments. The fascinating thing about MDMA is it's a stable salt. It's small. Uh, it stays, uh, it doesn't degrade at room temperature. Uh, it, it is a small molecule. It can get into the brain. In drug development, one of the big challenges we have is actually getting drugs into the brain. There's actually a lot, of, a lot of effort goes into trying to get across that blood-brain barrier. Your, your brain is very good at keeping things that it doesn't want out of the brain. Uh, MDMA gets in there not, you know, yeah, pretty effectively, uh, which is, which is you know, one advantage. Uh, and so there may be potential for uh, these compounds to treat other neurological conditions as well, uh, not just the typical mental health ones we associate with psychedelics. Yeah, I think that's, um, I'd love to speak, hear your thoughts on this, Hannah, but that speaks to something which I don't think gets enough press. It's too false a dichotomy that there's the psychoactive experience and then it, the psychoactive experience and it's been denuded of the phenomenology. It could be that we extrapolate out so we're actually making these more psychologically profound. And then in certain instances, there's a case when there's no uh, psychoactive component really at all, which for your person, you know, your granny with Parkinson's is, and maybe is, is, you know, not something which is, it's not a good profile. So one thing that comes up a lot for with MDMA, and we, we drill down on this, it's quite, I think it takes people by surprise. It, it's profundity at times. So, um, the, the phenomenology, the sort of how people experience the the psychedelic, the trip, is so contingent upon the set and setting, and MDMA is no different. Hannah, how have you found clients coming into Alalaho? I would imagine a lot of them have had previous experiences. Do they report any like work they've done themselves? Like, Were there any themes that came up about people, how they'd found experiences being more or less profound? With regards to MDMA or... Yeah, more generally, I suppose, maybe generally. open it up to just anyone's, you know. Um, well, yeah, so with the retreat, it was actually Experience Retreats. Oh, sorry. Uh, which then became Alalaho, but had to shut down because of COVID, unfortunately. Um, so in terms of people's prior use, but we did kind of interview people about their prior use of any illicit substances, including psychedelics. Um, many, many people had used MDMA. Um, it wasn't on offer at the retreat. It wasn't legal. Um, and, uh, you know, it would often be people who had had a profound experience with other types of psychedelics that were looking to come and try uh, psilocybin, which is, as most people know, the compound in magic mushrooms. Um, and... I guess that was not, it didn't kind of act as, as like an, an entry pathway into the, the retreat, but it was just like a, okay, you understand how a psychedelic works, you understand, you know, the profundity at which you can, um, I guess, you know, the level of profundity you can reach taking a substance like that. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, I suppose I think England would be a different context because there was a huge culture of MDMA 
use in the 80s so it's and you know it's very very prevalent and, and there's a whole we can get onto that in recreational but there's a whole set and setting there that you know when you're in a massive nightclub people have had very profound experiences i think in their youth and are now coming back to it in middle age like they say psychedelics are wasted on the young <laughs> well i think you know we probably will swing full circle into the recreational use but yeah. often people did report having very um transformative experiences just going out and taking something and i think that um whilst it obviously works really effectively in a a very kind of prepared well-prepared setting it it can also work in maybe a less expected um setting such as just you know going out with friends or um i've heard of people who've just kind of completely quit smoking or other kind of habits that they didn't really like just from one experience that they had recreationally mm-hmm. um so i think that's interesting too yeah there's just too many anecdotal whilst the plural of anecdote isn't data there are too many anecdotal cases of people having you know major cognitive shifts just after a recreational experience that took them by surprise so i think that's something which uh, it concerns me that they might screen for that uh, too much, too heavily to say, oh, you know, well, we just want people who are completely, you know, psychedelic virgins, so to speak. And then we miss all of these people who might have the tools needed, the cognitive tools needed for it to not be their first rodeo. Um, to maybe open it up a little bit more and we'll come back into psychedelics, but that makes me think of non other non ordinary states. The name of the talk is ordinary you know, non ordinary states for ordinary Australians, which we all are all ordinary Australians. But are there any other psychotechnologies, modalities, supportive augmentative strategies that you're you guys are particularly interested aside from psychedelics? Like what would be on your podium of other things that you would want to either do personally or, or have as part of a clinical care model? So I'm just open that up to whoever has anything to say on that. I'm super interested in neurofeedback. I don't know if anyone's experienced that or... Yeah, so it's, it's essentially training the brain at a neural level to um, yeah, giving the brain feedback often by images on a computer screen. It can be quite gamified so that um, you have to keep your brain waves to a certain um, type of wave like alpha or beta or whatever it might be. Um, and so you get kind of positive feedback um, if you're able to keep your, your mind, um, your brain kind of functioning at a certain level. Um, and so it can be, well, there's not enough research on it yet, but it seems that, you know, with the small amount of research there is, that it can be really beneficial, um, particularly with trauma. Um, and I think as an adjunct to psychedelic therapy, it could be amazing. Certainly. Um Virtual reality uh, is starting to get used more and more therapeutically uh, with some really profound uh, evidence uh, for conditions like phantom limb pain. So this is a condition where somebody might have lost a limb through trauma or some other event. Uh, They still believe they've got... They've got this sensation that, say, their left hand, which is actually amputated, is fixed in a grasp or uh, it's got searing pain uh, in the hand that's not there anymore. And so uh, you can simulate... Uh, the, the you know the presence of that limb using virtual reality and actually get people to uh, you know loosen up and, and realize they've actually got control lessen some of those experiences that's been pretty interesting yeah extend that to other pathologies gets yeah. quite intriguing the um that makes me think of um 
there's a chap called Skip Rizzo. I'm not sure where he's from. I'll put, if anything comes up, you can go back to the show notes. We'll keep quite detailed show notes so I can go and do, make work for myself. But you got a fact check. Yeah, in fact. No, absolutely. The, the VR is, um, is a fascinating one. Um, in a way, I wonder, does the fact that, you know, we haven't been down scheduled, which we can get onto the down scheduling, but in a way, is that must do as a great master. So is it almost forcing us to have to look a bit more broadly than we otherwise would have? Because if, if psychedelics had become legal, and I probably wouldn't pay as much attention to the other modalities as I, as I would, you know? <laughs> no, I think, well, my personal view is that psychedelics is so... Uh, so profound potentially that the uh, you know the research will continue. We just need to get the evidence for their efficacy. That's a conservative regulatory environment uh, is what we live in. Uh, they will be persuaded by the compelling evidence they're accustomed to seeing. We need to generate that through clinical trials. That's really what the lack of rescheduling has has, has uh, forced us into the typical clinical trial models that that we're accustomed to following for all drug de- uh, drug development and registration. Uh, rescheduling would have put a space on the shelf. For, for for legal medicines to to exist, uh, but it it would have taken none of the burden away that still still uh, may, uh, ret- uh, is uh, retained from from drug developers, researchers, uh, and and the need to do that research. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we may as well just jump into that because I I have no particular dog in the fight, and I'm quite agnostic about it. I can see both sides, but I do understand that we should attest to is. Prism um, had issued a statement, not at this stage, but if, to give people a bit of context, when the first descheduling was proposed. Um, and then I know that Ameria, with their experience in what we'll get onto, real-world evidence, um, were sort of more um, feeling that that was something which there was a case of, you know, to a certain extent, slow down, you know, no, we're not ready, yes, we are. So I don't. Is that, I know it's a very basic way to put it, but I'd love to hear from both of you gentlemen in terms of, you know, to to give best representation to what, say, Prism's position was on the scheduling, and then also Amerius to get them in context would be great. So maybe <clears throat> maybe to put some context. Yeah, please do. Um, you know, if it, right now in Australia, there's one, that's just one clinical trial that's currently recruiting, and we hope to see more clinical trials start recruiting this year, but we've only got one clinical trial recruiting in Australia. If you look at North America um, and in Europe, there's there's hundreds of clinical trials taking place. There are now thousands of therapists that are trained, um, but we're not in that. We don't we not, don't have that luxury of, of that wealth of experience, um, both in terms of the provision of the treatment and, and um, psychotherapists being able to get trained through clinical trials. Um, I think in terms of moving forward, um, the, the, the Australian government has, as I believe, as a consequence probably of the, the application to the TGA and the TGA recommending that further research be conducted, um, sunk $15 million into seven different projects. Um, but I, I'd be actually be interested because in, in my mind, $15 million isn't a lot of money to spend on drug development. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, Michael. Look, I think, I think it's great that they've spent that money. Um, the, there's actually a law in the US that as MDMA and psilocybin remain Schedule 1, uh, 
uh, no federal funding can be used to support the scheduling, rescheduling or legalization of MDMA or psilocybin. So that, that has actually forced uh, private industry to step up and, and be the sole sponsor of that clinical research. That's one of the circumstances that we have. And I know there's some consternation about the involvement of private industry in, in, this, in the funding of this research. Australia is somewhat uniquely federally funding this research, which is great. But none of those research programs uh, are, are coordinated in a fashion that would achieve uh, rescheduling necessarily, nor uh, actually registration, which is what becomes possible when you've got a drug rescheduled. So Schedule 9, uh, really important to kind of understand what, what the implication of that means. Uh, it t turns these into prohibited substances. These are substances like, uh, with high propensity for misuse or abuse. What that allows is it actually empowers each state uh, government to use their uh, legal and law enforcement agencies to control access. So if you want to use a Schedule 9 substance, you need permission not only from, you know, even if you get an approved clinical trial, you also need permission from local governments to actually uh, ad administer those drug treatments. Uh, and so the law, the law gets involved in that. Rescheduling to Schedule 8 does nothing about changing accessibility of the drug. It simply is a, an acknowledgement that there is medical benefit to these substances. It, it, all the effort required to actually still obtain these drugs still needs to ha happen. We still need to run clinical studies. We need to go head-to-head -head against randomized controlled trials, against placebo. We need to prove safety, efficacy, quality of the drug. You need to prove that your drug is manufactured to good manufacturing practices, which is an extremely stringent uh, requirement. And there is no, very, very few drugs uh, in that uh, form and quality uh, that exist at the moment. Only then have you done all that hard work can you go to the government and say, I believe we can be a prescribed medicine under that Schedule 8. All right? So schedule, going from Schedule 9 to 8 wouldn't have done nothing. It would have changed, wouldn't have made it getting easier to drug. It wouldn't have made it exclusively to the, you know, in the hands of private groups to use this drug. Uh, patients would still only be able to get it through compassionate access schemes or clinical trials, which is exactly where we are today with Schedule 9. The extra burden we have is this uh, lingering inconsistency that there is a that the government has claims that these molecules have no medical benefit, uh, which which is a tragedy. Sitting in Schedule Eight is cocaine, opium, uh, you know, pethidine, fentanyl, uh, lots of drugs that have been known to cause overdose deaths. Uh, that are uh, known illicit drugs, but these are controlled substances that have gone one step further in that there is at least some situations where they have a medical and therapeutic benefit and there's a lot of controls around that. And so, um, you know, rescheduling, I think it's, 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 it's frustrating that it didn't happen. I think it, it, does, it absolutely needs to happen for these treatments to become uh, more uh, utilised. Uh, but as a, as a political move, it's, it, it's, you know, one that we still need to, to persist in. One, yeah. one of the... One of the um Arguments, and I kind of heard it sort of in, in what you were saying was that, um, you know, th there's a lot of stigma associated with, with the drugs that are in Schedule 9, and that might have been one of the reasons for the TGA not down scheduling. Do you, do you think if um, these were brand new drugs, there's enough evidence at the moment for them, for the TGA to have, to, to have scheduled them as medicines? I, I think so. Um, remember, the TGA is. Uh, you know, a collection of individuals, they have to consider a consensus opinion, they need to weight heavily 
uh, particularly the opinions of very conservative groups like the AMA, uh, the College of Psychiatrists, who have been known to speak out against things like uh, transcranial um, stimulation, TMS, which has shown some benefit. Uh, the College of Psychiatrists was a very strong advocate against that intervention, despite positive you know, evidence that it was actually beneficial for patients. They finally you know, went across the line. Um, I, I think they're just a very conservative agency. I think it's easier to do to take a conservative view, and um, I think it's frustrating uh, that the the claim that there needs to be more evidence and research is such an easy throwaway statement. It is it is so commonly thrown uh, against uh, promising new treatments uh, that you know we've got two things: we can either keep rallying politically against it, or we can use our intellect and efforts to come up with new and better ways to generate evidence. Uh, and I think that's where we're forced to go at the moment. And so hopefully what will come from this is that we'll actually get great trials, like the ones that the state will fund, that you will lead yours, we'll do our own research, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get together and actually come up with smarter ways of getting that evidence and, and be, become a chorus that can't be yeah. ignored. Well, I think um, one thing which comes up when I'm listening to you gentlemen speak is we're all subject to dint of circumstance to the political and historical moment that we live in um, and I think the degree of conservatism and this, the political cycle which any of these regulatory bodies are under really determines things as much as, as the science does and that's not a cynical take, I think that's just the, the reality of it. I know Hannah that you've had experience now obviously working alongside me and we're sort of involved in this world in Australia um, but also in in a British context where obviously it's another sort of epicenter for research uh, getting to know some of the people involved in imperial trials and you know we were obviously chatting to people from the states at breaking convention and whatnot could you maybe give some sort of global perspective on this you know how the different cultures that you've worked in interface with psychedelics like have you, have you could you speak to that a little bit well, I'm really interested to go back to the yeah <laughs> the funding I guess of of research and well I guess just thinking about I get can I ask you Stephen a question about um, what what do you think would be the benefits of uh, keeping it off schedule eight for now keeping psychedelics off schedule eight well, firstly, I, I actually I, I disagree with Michael in terms of the evidence um, being at a point where even if these drugs weren't didn't have that history, I don't think the evidence would have been there to a point that the TGA would have, would have, would have made the medicines without that history. I think um, you, you, certainly when the application was made, no phase three trials have been completed. One's been completed now with MDMA in the US. Um, and, and, you know, when we look at psychotherapies, um, because so much research has happened with different psychotherapies, they've been pitted against each other. When the, that broader data has been analysed, you often find more um, variance within each treatment than, than across the treatments. And we, we don't have enough data yet to understand how much of what we're seeing is thera therapist effects versus how much is um, the, the treatment modality. We haven't pitted different treatment modalities against each other. Um, so, and I, I without plagiarising, um, I was, um, recently read something from um, Bill Richards that was talking about the issue of therapist effects, because what he was saying was that at John Hopkins, he's the lead, one of the lead clinicians at John Hopkins, and, and even at Imperial, you know, the, the clinicians that have been involved in the clinical trials thus far have been, um, you know, they've been hand-picked for the trials, and he questions whether um, we'll see these effects when it's mainstreamed and rolled out into the community. 
it's sort of the, not supposed to push back against that, but some some other sort of um, artifact of that might be the degree of positive expectancy right now. You know, you get a letter in the mail, you're going into you know the the campus. You've been listening to a podcast with the most, um, you know, like Bill Richards, who's like a sort of, you know, and the, 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 the risk of personality cults and psychedelics is insane. So, you know, you're driving and going, I'm going to see Bill, Bill Richards. You know, it's, I mean, that's, that will ameliorate over time as we get out into, you know, it's not Bill Richards, the famous person, it's William Richards from Adadale or, you know, it's uh, so, but the point is that we don't really, so if I'm just want to pick in on, I think it's a great question. Is it? Do you bel- would I be right to say that you think we, we we need more time to delineate where the the signal is in in different therapies, and we just need more time to to make sure we know what the lay of the land is before we roll it? Yeah. So so I think I think you know the the FDA is is still waiting for more data. The EMA is still waiting for more data. So I don't think the TGA, as being a very conservative organisation, I don't think the TGA is ever going to move before the FDA does. Um, yeah. So I think that there's there's that aspect of it in terms of um, I've kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> Would I be right in saying that that you know the the therapy or the treatment itself is is both the drug and the therapy? Therefore, we have to find out which parts are contributing more or which parts are contributing what before going. Okay, this is safe to re- reschedule. Is that what you mean? I. I think in terms of main, you know, this idea of mainstreaming it so that, that clinicians across Australia are able to deliver the, the intervention, I think, yeah, there does need to be more data collected. Um, I, I don't think it needs to be at that level um, so that we can understand exactly what's going on because that could happen afterwards. That could, you know, the real world evidence that, that Michael talks about, that, that information could definitely be collected afterwards. One of the dangers in rolling it out too early though, and I saw this with medical cannabis, and, and I have to say, um, I, when I first saw this with medical cannabis, I was quite taken aback, where I heard in Perth, a, a, a researcher in Perth, maybe in 2017, late 2017, when I first arrived here, um, saying that we don't want to see the downscheduling of um, THC or CBD, because if you can go out and access it from your GP, then what's the incentive to participate in a clinical trial and, and go through all the hassle of potentially being administered a placebo when you can just go to your go to your GP and get the drug? Um, I think it would be good to hear. We've used the word real world evidence. Um, the FDA have made an announcement recently, and I saw you tweeted about that. Um, I'd love for you to unpack that term and just give us a bit of context for for how that interfaces with the clinical stuff that Steve's talking about. Frankly, it's a pretty terrible word. Uh, What isn't real-world evidence? (laughs) Fake world or virtual-world evidence? Um, Probably some consultant has made this (laughs) up. Uh, But usually it's a term given to uh, clinical data uh, or clinical evidence that's captured outside the usual clinical trial infrastructure. So in a clinical study... Uh, the processes are very tightly described and controlled. So who gets on the study? Uh, there is tight inclusion, exclusion criteria. It basically ends up meaning that, and, and, exactly, and the uh, assessments you do on those participants uh, are, are very scripted and can't be varied. You have to be a strict adherence to the protocol, and that's required and mandated by, uh, by formal ethics-approved clinical studies. What that ends, ends up meaning is that many times, patients who are on clinical studies do not look like the patients that 
clinicians typically see uh, in their standard practice because trials don't account for all the variants of individuals uh, and the way healthcare is, healthcare is, uh, is practiced uh, generally in the community. And so uh, FDA, in recognizing this, has had, a trouble, has had challenges generalizing the purported benefits that clinical trials demonstrate on well-hand-picked uh, trial participants out into the real world. And so they've taken an interest. They say, well, actually, we really want to see how people do on these treatments in the, in the real world, out in standard practice, when they've got other issues going on in their life, when they're taking other medication, where they're not adhering it to it by the protocol, etc. And so uh, this evidence is really, really compelling. And uh, groups in the states particularly have carefully aggregated, curated uh, real-world data and come up with new indications for cancer treatments, have extended uh, the utility of, of, of approved treatments by watching how they play out in the real world. And so now tremendous investment and interest is going into capturing, collecting, making sense of, analyzing data in a healthcare environment that's not in a clinical trial setting, arguably a far more realistic way uh, of, of, of evaluating uh, how treatments are, are performing. Massive challenges about doing this though, because you're, if you think back to your last time you went to your GP or your doctor, uh, was there paper involved? Uh, was there, were they tapping away at a computer? Uh, you know, was there any standardization to what they were collecting? Did they ask about outcomes? Did they use a tool that could measure how well you've done since the last time that you saw you? Probably not. And so there's some huge deficiencies in the way healthcare is practiced. Uh, and so um, at Amira, having come from clinical trial background, one of our opportunities we see is to try and take the lessons and learnings and practices of clinical trial world and apply them into frontline clinical care. And what that really means is measuring what's happening in somebody with tools that, make sense, uh, that, that are validated and tracking those changes over time so we can see how somebody's doing. And arguably, I think we can do a much better job learning from real patients. And, and we believe that that evidence can become persuasive for regulators, for drug innovation, really be, represent yeah. a whole new way of studying treatments. And um, I think that context of real world evidence, you know, seeing how stuff interacts with real life out in the wild, it sounds like this is where a lot of the entering wedge, I think for, for want of a better term, the corporate sector, because there's an understanding that if that's gonna be valid, it needs to be, you know, a lot bigger, the data needs to be more powerful, there needs to be more people, just more, more, more capture means more resources, I suppose. So it might be an opportunity to, to pivot, and I, I can't say that word without thinking from Ross from Friends trying to move a sofa up a set of stairs, but if we sort of pivot to the, the role that, we've talked a lot about the clinical care model and different aspects of that and issues we have and hopes we have for the future, people with deep pockets have been coming in in the States for a long period of time. But that is obviously starting to, ca to, to really uptick now in, in Australia, more specifically. Um, what are your, gr I'd love to ask each of the panelists, in, in whatever way that comes to you, it doesn't need to be a really technical answer, but money coming in to a resources, let's just say, expertise, you know, mainstream attention, money that comes from that mainstream, that, uh, money that comes from governments and private organizations. What are your greatest hopes for that in the psychedelic space and what are your greatest concerns about that? So maybe to sort of go from, I'd love to hear all your thoughts on your, your hope, you know, what are your hopes for that? I don't have a lot of hopes, but I can <laughs> give you a lot of concerns. Yeah, yeah, so that's going to be a very short pro list and quite a long. Go, go, go for it. I want to hear I, the I, look, everyone's I, laundry list. I, I, I think, yeah, it, look, 
I think it is a good thing. I think that um, that it's become clear that, as Michael was saying, with with the limitations over over government funding, that that private industry does need to um, come in and, and support research and and help you know gather the evidence that we've been talking about. So I, I think that that's the hope is that 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 will be that's that's important and it is a positive thing. The the concerns I have are that um, well, firstly. If for, for a company to come in, they need to be able to see that there's a profit to be made from doing that. So often the way that's happened in the past is, is through intellectual property. And we've seen, you know, Compass Pathways trying to patent everything from, you know, the therapeutic touch um, through to their own version of psilocybin, which is unclear whether it's going to ha- uh, hold up in court yet. Um, a really good example that's non, not necessarily, you know, psychedelic or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is is ketamine, where um, Johnson and Johnson have patented the delivery method for for S ketamine, which is essentially ketamine. And before that period of time, um, people were, were getting infusions, uh, and it was it was a fairly cost-effective way. It was fairly cost-effective. Um, but the esketamine, because they're, they're trying to, they, they need to make the money back to be, for the clinical trials they've conducted with esketamine, um, it's become very expensive. So that, that's, that's one example. I think one of my other main concerns is um, companies can, if, you know, if it's, if it's a public listed company, then the share prices are determined by the enthusiasm within the community there is for a particular treatment that they're funding. And so something I've seen happen is a lot of uh, companies hyping up the potential of psychedelics, extrapolating well beyond the data and creating a lot of enthusiasm, which could be seen as a good thing, but the flip side to it is it does have potential iatrogenic effects where people who are desperate because they're unable to access these um, will go out and seek them in the underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what about hopes? <laughs> well, the, the hope is that there will, we'll see more research happening as sure. a consequence. So there's the inevitable consequence that more money equals more more data, and it's just a case of maybe, and you uh, to maybe see if I can really get make sure I'm getting you right. It's a case of it's not that you're concerned about energy behind research or or interest per se. It's the intentionality and the quality, the balance of the two, because there are always going to be bad faith actors in any new commodity. But it's maybe the commodification that you take. Your perceived yeah, commodification. It's, it's not so. even the, the commodification. I think, as you say, there, there's different players, and it depends on how they how they handle that. As an example, um, some of the things I've seen recently on social media that made me cringe a little bit was uh, I won't name the company, but the the director of a, a Canadian psychedelic company um, suggesting that psilocybin might be used to treat long COVID. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's um, cannabis yeah. already cures long COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, there's some batshit crazy when you go down the go down the rabbit hole on on um, what psychedelics can and can't can't do. So I, and and that doesn't and being having the corner office doesn't sometimes seem to make you immune from <laughs> tweeting really mad mad things. Um, so same question to you, Michael. What are your thoughts? Look, I, I think um, you know I'm a, I'm a fundamental optimist, so I tend to see that things will turn out okay. But you know, remember where we are pioneers on a frontier. We are like uh, riding into the Wild West and we're full of cowboys and that's where the gunfights are happening and uh, the, all the noise. Um, and so, uh, you know, what this is going to do, it's going to bring money and talent into this, into this challenge and we'll do that. 
It will also bring the sharks and the spruikers and the snake oilsmen. Uh, they'll come as well. Unfortunately, my, my, my concern is that the public markets, where a lot of this capital will be, will be found most readily, uh, is a place where you get uh, you know, distortions of the truth, where you get caricatures of, of, of really what's going on. Um, it's, it's actually it's difficult for me to explain you know the complexity of our business uh, to a retail investor market. I've got to, I get my feedback is make it simpler, make it simpler, make it simpler. If if those are the pressures, uh, then of course it's actually really difficult to see what's where the substance is. Um, but that's not to say that companies that um, have maybe a simple message don't have the substance behind them, and I think that they will be the ones left standing. Uh, and so I think that the opportunity is huge, the problem's massive. Where there's value to be created, then there'll be value to be captured, and that's what actually will uh, lead to you know, to the right uh, sort of groups moving in eventually. Um, we will have to push against uh, to get mainstream. Those regulators sit there as the final hurdle. Uh, they they're going to require uh, compelling clinical evidence, and the expense and the effort required to obtain that uh, will be the final barrier that will filter out a lot of companies. I th uh, one small point there which came to me when I was chatting to, to a friend the other day was I've heard Rick Doblin talk a lot about how he obviously built a for those who obviously most people I'm sure know but for those listening Rick Doblin spent a long time screaming into the wilderness and his, his phrase for himself was he was a fuck up who kept trying and <laughs> surprise surprise he did and he became very Apollonian very focused on working with the government regulatory bodies and so he wasn't he was a 20 year overnight success with the FDA but what he said whenever he walked into the boardrooms was he was able to leverage a certain critical mass behind the suits and ties of guys at that level who got it. Because when they were in there, I mean, not being facetious here, because they used to be deadheads, they knew what the crack was. I don't have a good, you know, and so whilst they're never going to put that on the policy update to say, you know, yeah, whenever I was 23, LSD saved my life. And then, you know, I actually knuckled down and cut my hair and got a job. And here I am and, you know, in a position to move the needle. But he, he, he's mentioned it several times because it isn't some trivial element. I don't have a good sense for where we're at because I didn't grow up here because access to these substances is completely different geographically and was in the 70s, 70s and the 80s. But it's just maybe to just put that out there that the more people come out about it and show that they have lived functional, you know, rich, full and meaningful lives, I think the, the easier that job becomes and, and the more we can get a sense for where everybody's at. I think it's quite a unifying thing to see that behind the suits and, and in the drum circles, people are all the same. So that's just my little rant <laughs> to that point. Um, Hannah, same question to you. Um, what what are your sort of hopes and concerns about the inevitable emergence of, of us energy from the, from the corporate sector? Well, I think these guys have pretty much covered it, but I, I am also um, hopeful that, uh, you know, it will come out in the wash um, when you know, companies that have proven to be, uh, I guess, to hold up their integrity and to deliver, you know, a very, um, I don't know, a very clean, clean product, I don't know, <laughs> um, for want of a better term, but something that is, is actually going to do what it says it does, I suppose, and that's always going to be different, obviously, with, with the psychedelic experience, but more in terms of providing a long-lasting um, effect that, that is going to be something that the person, the individual can go continue to return to in terms of what their experience was on that psychedelic. Um, because I don't think it's something that just 
you know, it's not something that acts while you're just on it. It's something that tends to, um, yeah, I mean, it, can t- it can take years and years to integrate an experience, right? So I think for a company to be able to to hold that integrity in delivering that sort of an experience where, you know, I guess that leads into my concern that um, to make money, maybe companies will say you need lots more of this than you actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you mean more in, in the sense of dosages or say pushing microdosing maybe to, to keep with the yeah, current sort like of pharmaceutical maybe, paradigm, for example? Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe you need more full-on doses to to get better and you know maybe that will become uh some like the kind of de rigueur for some companies um but you know i think giving the individual the right to kind of say you know this is enough for me or like my treatment plan will be dictated by my own experience in terms of how i respond to this and Mm. um yeah yeah, those those are my thoughts on yeah and in terms of like how would you say it sounds like you guys are all sort of singing off the same hymn sheet it's maybe a difference in temperament of optimism experience uh, but we all need to be very take responsibility to be good at sorting the weight from the chaff when it comes to the messaging of companies and and different organizations so um, would you guys have any advice for because there's a lot of interest in people who are the current treatments that they're using are just not really cutting the mustard or they were for a while and they're not going forward so how do people navigate, would you have any advice for, for people navigating, you know, not right now everyone's doing their own thing, but when it becomes a little bit more legal and a little bit more accessible, how should people discern? Do you have any advice for people at a, at a say, a personal or, or even in a business level? Like, would you have any sort of principles of cutting out the snake oil? How do you tell the snake oil, terms, uh, the snake oil guys from the guys with, you know, legitimate integrity? Uh, I think there's a, there's a challenging question, but maybe a, a view is that the, the first successes we'll have in these treatments uh, will feel fairly reductionist. They'll be very, very specific. There'll be the treatment, you know, MDMA-assisted therapy according to a very standard, proven you know, pr- practice with trained, accredited therapists uh, for a particular indication in patients with a fairly severe form of the disease, potentially, as judged by their treating specialist. Uh, it'll be... So I, I believe it'll be niche first, before it'll be mainstream, before it'll be choose your own adventure, before it'll be um, you know, an option for a wide variety of um, you know, disorders and, 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 and mental health challenges, which is I think where it, it'll hopefully end up at some point. Uh, we, we are gonna start with a fairly, you know, it, it'll, it'll be fairly tightly controlled what we can do for it and where we can apply it. And the, you know, the, the typical navigator of those decisions is, is, is a specialist or, or, or a clinical uh, you know, physician. Uh, making that choice in, in prescribing these treatments. Um, so I think that function will be, uh, will, you know, the navigator function will be done by that, that yeah. individual. Before people, on the topic of choosing one's own adventure, I think it's probably a good point to, to um, try not to say the word pivot, but it's not possible, so to pivot more into the, um, the sort of, the, what we've all sort of in different ways discussed is that maybe a bit of a false dichotomy between clinical use of these substances and the more broader church of, of recreational use. Um, so I'm wondering, um, in terms of recreational use, 
what I, I've heard it being demonized quite a bit by people who I don't who I know privately from doing a podcast don't have anything against the recreational use of substances because there's almost been like this swing back where we, we have to make sure we don't fuck this up and no one's allowed to say that they've ever used these and just had a good time and you know they're not everything has to have a certain gravitas you know so in terms of have you heard any themes coming through which give you concern for for or this is I'm I'm rambling what are your thoughts about the recreational use of psychedelics in Australia like how how would you see that being something that we can bring into the fore well Really, recreational use is not really that much different to therapeutic use. I'll change the term from clinical to therapeutic. Really, the difference is the intention. So if you're going to a festival and dropping acid, you're probably wanting to have fun, and that's the intention. And when when I've provided um, harm reduction services at festivals, people have had those transcendental experiences like you're talking about, Hannah, um, but their intention was to have fun. Their intention wasn't to have that transcendental experience and, and have somebody sit with them for, for eight hours um, during, that, during that process. So, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the idea of there being a distinction between recreational and therapeutic use is somewhat arbitrary and, and it's, it's not a, there's not really a clear-cut clear distinction between the two. Not at all. And people will have quite... In a, in a therapeutic therapeutic trial it's not like people sometimes don't have a lot of fun you know that's something it's the directionality is both both ways uh, and so any therapist worth their salt will tell you that having a good time is often a really foundational part of healing i suppose one of the only differences really is just that you do have a therapist involved you know <laughs> um, for the therapeutic use whereas you may have a stand-in therapist or like your friend may be your therapist for a night if you'd use it recreationally, but there's not that kind of um, planned involvement of a, a therapist in the, the session, I guess. Mm. So the people that were you were, you were triaging and you spoke to them on, on the phone prior to them, you know, you quite an extensive triage. Yeah, you, they're sort of stand-in therapists, they're friends. Like, would you have any advice, Hannah, for how to help someone who is having a, you know, in in the context that say Stephen's talking about, you know, someone's gone to a festival to have, L, you know, just taken LSD, dropped some acid, thought they're going to have fun, and as we all know, that can go in a very different direction. They can get into some some uh, real processing. Like, would you have any advice for how people can support their friends? Um, I'm sure Stephen could add as well as he's done some work with the harm mm. reduction stuff, but. Um I think from what from what I've learned and what I've heard um, is really helping people to ground themselves to come back to reality, so to speak. Um, so yeah, using quite simple grounding exercises, whether that's breathing or um, you know, kind of using your senses in a way that that helps you to feel like you are right here, right now. Um, and yeah, I don't know, Stephen, would you have advice to add? Um, in addition, yeah. In addition to what you've said, uh, helping people reframe the experience so that they're not having a bad trip. There's a challenging, they're having a challenging experience because usually when people are having a bad time, they're trying to change their, you know, change their situation emotionally, cognitively, whatever. And the more they try and change it, the worse things get. So once they just kind of let go and allow the experience to happen, um, they they usually feel a lot better very quickly so yeah, I think reframing is a really important part and just basic things um, you know like 
uh, reminding the person that the experience that they're having is the result of a drug that they've taken and the drug will wear off and they will come back to baseline and reassuring them that that will happen. Um, and uh, during that process, people can get, you know, get really fixated on things like the time and just telling them, you know, it's, 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 what's, what's the, you know, they'll ask you what the time is and letting them know, well, it's, it's, it's a minute since you asked me last time. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but just being really frank about yeah. that, not trying to, yeah, just yeah. being really authentic. Don't say it's been several eternities in a different dimension, yeah. or, you know, just tell them the time. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking as you're saying that, maybe it would be great to flesh out a little bit, like Hannah alluded to. This is work that you've done, you know, on the ground, boots on, boots in the mud at the festivals with Dancewise mostly. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Dancewise and how you know how how they function at a festival because I'm not sure if everybody's aware that these you know these organisations are, are are out there. Yeah, we don't have anything like it in Perth, um, and so I was really lucky to be in Melbourne and Prism had a partnership with um, with Dancewise, which gave me the opportunity and other members of prison the opportunity to go in and, and do the the trip sitting sort of harm reduction work uh, what was the question well just like how because i'm thinking that's like a different type of real world evidence you know to your point that there's no such thing as not real world evidence what would a sort of bread and butter experience be like for your you know you're working in that context like how do you spot someone struggling do people come to you to attend like i just love to know the, the sort of granular detail yeah. of how it works so that, I think that that's, that's what I was trying to um, go to, was, was the history. So Dancewise has a long history over East. They used to be called um, Dance, maybe Dance, no, it wasn't Dance Safe. But there was another, they, they sort of rebranded, but it came from the community. It wasn't a government-funded initiative where people, you know, funded by the government went out into festivals. It was actually community-initiated and then the government funded it and then rolled it out in um, New South Wales. They're recruiting in the Northern Territory at the moment to set another... Uh, set up another, another dance wise um, and through that long history of community connection there's a lot of trust it's all run by um, peers which I think helps with the trust as well it's not some doctor it's somebody who um, is telling you that they've 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 been in a similar situation not that situation you're in but something similar that they, they genuinely can understand the situation that that the person's in so I think the, the peer-based component is really important, the history is really important, and also um, the way they're often set up is in partnership with paramedic, the paramedics on site. And the paramedics love DanceWise because it means they're transporting less patients to hospital who don't need to go to hospital. I think that'd be my other bit of advice is avoid at all costs um, sending someone to hospital if all they've got on board is a psychedelic. If they feel like they're dying, get a blood pressure machine, get a pulse monitor, um, find out how, how their vital signs are because if you can avoid a hospital trip, that's going to be a real bad time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the context of, you know, you say to... Bill Richards, I think I'm dying, and you say to an you know accident emergency doctor, I think I'm dying. Like they've got different hats on, so they have different you know scopes. So it's a you know different horses for courses. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, do you guys capture a lot of the data about recreational use with your clients coming in? How does how does it work at Amiria? Yeah, so uh, most of the patients that we see, and we've seen now um, nearly six thousand, mainly for medicinal cannabis uh, who, who, patients who've been referred to us from their specialist or GP. Uh, because nothing else has worked. Uh, so we've, we see a very diverse patient population, to give you a flavour of that. Children as young as two, patients as old as 98, uh, more than 45 different clinical indications uh, seek treatment at our clinics. And we typically ask for a clean drug screen because it's important for us to, to differentiate between the conflation of recreational use and what actually might be happening through the introduction of this new treatment. 
we, we want to understand the effect of the new treatment, uh, it would make no sense for us to allow them to take medicinal ca- you know, cannabis recreationally uh, in amongst that because we really want to understand the dose effects uh, to understand what's really happening. So we do ask about drug use history and we ask for a clean drug screen usually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is something which I think is really subject to the political cycle because in order for you know, an organisation, like in a way the fact that the government wasn't in charge of doing these peer support things is probably good because when the government tried to do cool things for, for young people, it's, it's fucking tragic. You know? <laughs> but it seems like you'd have to acknowledge that there's recreational drug use in the first place before you, you know, initiate these services, which is it's better to just pretend like that doesn't happen. But obviously collecting data, you have to understand that you know, people are out there living. Um, and I, I'm not trying to be a, a, a grammar Nazi on this, but I think it is interesting that we use these terms like a clean you know, drug screen to say, well, if someone takes, you know, uh, if someone has a few drinks the night before, or takes MDMA, had a dance, does, you know, does that mean they're dirty? You know, so there is, and I'm not pushing back on that, but there's something where we need to really focus on the semantics to say, there's, I think there's maybe responsible and irresponsible use. Um, how would, um, you know, okay, let's let's ask my r- most ridiculous rambling question. It's what I call the realistic magic wand question, which makes people say, do you know what a magic wand does? Because they're not supposed to be realistic. But we've, we've talked about the hope for the future of, you know, clinical therapeutic models. It's five, ten years' time. You've had a fairly benign government. Um, you know, you're... You, the way that you would like recreational use of psychedelics is, is out there in, in the wild of Australia. What what does that look like five to ten years from now? Do you feel like what would you like to see? Yeah, I think you know it, uh, to give people the opportunity to try a safe experience with, uh, with, the, with these treatments, uh, whether they have a mental health condition or not. Um, it's not about just seeking a thrill or you know, trying to make, you know, optimize your, your life experience. It could just be around seeing the world differently, um, taking creative inspiration. I, c- I can see a lot of uh, you know, use for these treatments when done safely, but we'd need to reassure people that the product they're taking is high quality, it's safe, that they've got the support around them. Um, uh, we take a load of drugs all the time. I, I loaded up this morning on my caffeine. Uh, people had alcohol, I'm sure. Uh, we just need the right kind of cultural support around these treatments, and I think we could find some really interesting ways that could you know, influence us uh, if there are opportunities to try it safely. Yeah, as it, what Michael Pollan calls the cultural container, and I think it's going to need to be specific, a bit more specific to here than, else, than elsewhere. Hannah, do you have any thoughts sort of on like what you would like to see? You know, you've got clients coming in in five to ten years. You know that they're taking. You ask the question about re- recreational psychedelic use. Like, what what would be your hopes for how that's sort of tessellating and out in the wild and clients? It would be lovely to have it normalised, responsible use of psychedelics normalised. Um, and I suppose for that to happen, it would be, have to be decriminalised. Um, I... Yeah, I don't even know how, how it's going to go in terms of accessing accessing once things do get descheduled or ch- the scheduling changes. Um, I, I'd be interested to see the data from some of the states in the US that have decriminalised psilocybin, for instance, um, ED kind of admissions, things like that, whether that's changed. I doubt it has, to be honest, but I don't know. Um, do either of you guys know how that's gone at all? 
Well, a lot of it's only just been implemented in terms of psilocybin. In the, the, the PRISM submission that you mentioned, we drew very heavily on Oregon as, a, as, a, as an example of, of how we might do things differently in Australia. And I don't... The, the, the bit that tripped me on the question, Niall, was, was realistic. Because if I'm optimistic, <laughs> then, yeah. then I would say absolutely. Something yeah. like the Oregon model where sure. it's, it's you know, a pseudo-legalisation where people are able to legally grow magic mushrooms and there's um, a system put in place so that people are able to, to use them with a guide, not so much, in the con- not so much as a treatment per se, but as, as an opportunity, like you're saying, to, to have a safe place for people to use those substances and experience them. And I think that provides a really good model because um, it's accessible you know, because of the low cost of, of growing mushrooms, where if we're talking about synthetic psilocybin and other synthetic compounds and putting all of the things we need to to be able to um, provide treatments, like the clinical governance, having two, two therapists, um, all of those sorts of things, it's, it's potentially going to make it very difficult for people to be able to access the treatment. So I guess another hope I would have, and it may not be realistic, would be um, that the treatments are made increasingly accessible through um, through delivering them in our public mental health care services because I think we have quite good public mental health care services that have all of the bits and pieces that, that are required. So we've got psychiatry and social work and psychologists. Um, we, could, we have um, the capacity to, to um, triage people up if things don't go so well. And so, yeah, the public mental health care system, I think, is, is a really... A really good place for for these treatments to be made available. It's something. If anyone knows of anyone who works in that, you know, higher level at sort of policy making, that's something which I think we've talked about in different contexts with Alistair Victor. We've obviously obviously spoken about it, and Jeremy, who can't be here today, we spoke about that. And you know, there are lots of really good opinions which are actually quite opposing. But the sort of general theme is making these therapeutically accessible through the public mental health care system offers massive opportunity but it's probably going to require some major paradigm shifts some real deep thoughts some you know real uh, uh, sort of important policy action and and it's not going to happen overnight it reminds Uh, me of um the first thought i had when i came down from my first psilocybin experience in the netherlands which was why the hell are these illegal like what the hell? This is something that everyone should have, um, at, you know, the ability to experience. And I, I was kind of outraged <laughs> um, because I just thought this is so important. And, yeah, it's such a – for me, it's been life-changing. So um, – and, I, you know, so many countless others can say the same. Um, so I'd, I'd love to – like you, I'm optimistic in that I'd love to see it – becoming something along the lines of like in Oregon. Um, yeah, that's couldn't agree more. Um, I am very keen to get you guys involved and have quite, if anyone has questions, but I'd, is there anything else that you guys think is important that for us to mention right now? Or sh- you know, is there anything, any burning thoughts, anything that we haven't really covered that we should maybe explore in future talks or is everyone sort of happy that we've covered most of the bases? I think we've solved it all now. <laughs> we figured it out. Um, well, before we move into the Q&A section, um, and then we'll be shortly going through just for, for a bit of chat and food and whatnot, um, before we get into q and I'd love to just 
a little round of applause for, for the guys for being so appreciative. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And as usual, all the show notes are on the website with links to topics discussed if you want to deep dive into anything. And please share the channel and subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. It really helps us out. So future guests on deck for uh, imminent release are with Emmanuel Schindler. She's pioneering the treatment of serious pain conditions with psychedelics. And Simon Baron-Cohen, who is a world expert in autism. So this will function as a sort of a primer conversation into autism itself more generally, as I think it's an area where there could be a massive value add for the lives of autistic people. And I would just like to explore the potential of these substances for use in helping people of all neurotypes live more rich, full and meaningful lives. So until next time, thanks very much for listening and no late to marry.